right, you got to know that I love that song. I, partic- I specifically asked for this song for this series. And uh, my goal is that before we finish these three weeks of this sermon series to begin the year, that all the heads in the auditorium are nodding back and forth, just jamming to that tune. Um, I actually have never heard the whole song, but I just, lo- I just love the beginning of it. It's just, it's one of those, clack- it takes you back to like the 70s, for those of you that are old enough to remember that. Grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of First Chronicles 29. I don't think I've ever started a sermon series in Chronicles, ever. Um, this is a topical sermon, uh, sermon series, and so we're going to be all over the Bible, particularly today, but we're going to start in Chronicles, so go ahead and turn there. If you, are, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the center aisle of, of chairs, there uh, are two Bibles underneath, and you are welcome to use that while we're uh, gathered together today, and uh, I would tell you you can have that as well as your, as your gift. Just take it with you. Um, if you're going to use that Bible, First Chronicles is on page 229 in the Old Testament. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for uh, even the cold weather, which reminds us that you're a God that, um, that loves seasons. You love uh, variety, and uh, definitely this cold weather that we've had here in the D.C. region has given us much variety, much to, to, to think about. And uh, Lord, we uh, anticipate our gathering today uh, that we're going to hear from you by your word, that, you're, that you are here amongst us by your presence. There are two or three of us gathered here anticipating that, um, Lord, you're going to speak to us even. And as you speak to us, Lord God, would you remind us of your gospel? Would you remind us that we need you, that we are, uh, that we are sinners that need to be rescued, uh, even in this, uh, this area of financial management and money? And uh, God, we pray that... Uh, as you uh, bring your word to us, that you change us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Listen to this. We go to school to learn how to earn it. We spend 40 to 60 hours a week working to acquire it. We commit our weekends to creatively spending it. We spend countless numbers of hours worrying about whether we'll have enough of it. We spend a lot of time dream building, supposing a chance will come when we'll stumble into a lot of it. Arguments over handling it are one of the leading causes of divorce. Despair over mishandling it significantly contributes to the suicide rate. Love of it causes many of society's crimes. The absence of it creates some of society's greatest nightmares. Call it the root of all kinds of evil. Call it the means for supreme good. But there's one thing you cannot do, and that's ignore it. What am I talking about? It's all right to say it. Money, 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 money. Talking about money. I'm curious as we begin the new year and as uh, probably visions of depleted bank accounts and uh, overdrawn, you know, credit card bills and all that stuff dance in your head, replacing the sugar plums that might have been there over the Christmas time. Anybody here feeling a little bit of financial tension as you begin the new year? Seriously, raise your hand. All right. For those of you that raise your hand, you know, uh, you know, my hand's raised, too. I'm a church planner, and I always feel financial tension. All right. At least since I moved up here to the D.C. area. Um, so uh, if you're one of those squared away ones that chose not to raise your hand, even be- either because there's just a little bit of fear, you don't want anybody knowing your financial status, or perhaps you are actually squared away with your money, 
Hold on a few seconds. By the end of this sermon series, you will feel a little tension. All right. I'm, I'm just kidding with that. Um, you know, I think it's a given fact that whenever a preacher starts talking about money, um, we get a little a little bit apprehensive, maybe maybe even fearful. The thought is that the preacher is going to end up giving you some plea that's going to ask you to give or contribute or pledge money. Um, in fact, if, if you're a good preacher, what you do is you bring in a guest. You bring in a guest preacher and you bring in somebody that's good talking about money. At least that's the way I grew up. And, uh, and that guy will, I mean, he can bring it. And he gives you all the right scriptures. He, he woos your heart. And you're, I mean, it's like you want to give after he finishes talking. Um, but, I mean, just look around. Take a deep breath. Exhale, folks. It's just me. Um, and I would tell you, for those of you, who have, there aren't very many of you who have been here the, the 20 months, the, the whole 20 months of our church's life. But there's really only one time that I've stood up in the midst of a sermon to, to preach about giving. And that was in the very first sermon series that we did as we launched the church. We were in Galatians. And there's a passage in Galatians 6 where Paul's talking about financial support for those who, who bring the word. That was the only time I've talked about giving in the life of our church. And so you can exhale. Um, I'm, an, I'm an expository preacher. I don't typically preach uh, topically. Um, but every once in a while, we need to be challenged. We need to be jarred, and that is one of my goals here uh, in this in this series. Uh, my main focus here is not to um, not to make you give more money. We're not raising money for a building campaign. Um, I'm not going to try to show, uh, help you or make you show your allegiance to me as your pastor, to the transit as your church, or even to God by by encouraging you to give more. I'm actually not going to ask you to give at all, but I am going to talk about money. And I'm going to talk about money for three weeks because the Bible has a lot to say about money. And I think as people, as disciples of Jesus, we need to be always pressing ourselves to know what the Bible says and, uh, and you know what the Bible says we should do. So that's going to be our focus. Today we're going to start with the big picture. We're going to look at uh, very many scriptures that, that show us what we should be doing with our money. What does the Bible say about you and your money? Next week, we're going to talk a, a few minutes about stewardship. And then the last week, we'll round it out talking about uh, money and the mission of the church. So that really is the way that we'll start our year. And if you're curious, after that, we're going to be in the book of John for a little bit. All right. So that will that will be how we'll start 2015. As we jump into the sermon today, this this is where I'm going. The Bible presents two extremes, two extremes of truth about money that on the surface seem contradictory. They seem to conflict each other. The first is that wealth is one of the major ways that God blesses us. That is uh, in the Bible. We see that one of the signs that God blesses his people, that God's favor is on you is that he gives you, uh, he gives you wealth. He, put, he, he gives you money. Uh, it, it's it's ab- abundant in your life. Um, this is important to know, though. The Bible says that God is the source of all wealth. And that's what we find in that scripture that, that I had you uh, put as a placeholder. First Chronicles 29, 12, on um, page 229 in your pew Bible. First Chronicles 29, 12, as I focus my eyes on my Bible, both riches and honor come from you, 
and you actually let me back up a little bit. I'm gonna, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to back up a little bit because I like this passage. This is David at the end of his life. He's about to crown his son Solomon as the king in his place. And these are his parting words. Anytime you're about to die or go on and, and turn your, uh, what you've done over in life to someone else, I mean, the words that you have are important. And it's, it's interesting that David talks about God being the source of wealth uh, so his son would carry this on as uh, an important principle that he lived by. Verse 10, therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is uh, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Then verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So uh, David here is espousing that everything that exists in the world, in the heavens and on the earth below, belong to God. Deuteronomy 8, uh, verse 18. This is on page 99 in your Bibles. So flip left. Deuteronomy 8, 18. says this. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to his fathers as it is this day. And of course, this passage is encompassed in uh, Moses recounting the laws that God had given for Israel to live by. And he's reminding the people that God is the one that gives you the very power to get wealth. And so if if there are two sides of the truth, in regards to uh, how the Bible espouses wealth, then this side of the truth would be God wants to bless us. And the, the truth is, uh, there are some in, in this line of thinking, mostly prosperity preachers, that would tell you that they read uh, Bible verses like this, and they build a theology that God wants you to be rich. And they're actually I mean, they're, they're kind of right. The Bible, God doesn't say he wants us to be poor. He says he wants, he gives us power to gain wealth. Um, but where the, where the prosperity preachers take it and maybe extend it beyond where it's supposed to go is they say God wants you to be rich. It's the devil that wants you to be poor. So all you need to do is bind the devil, claim it, name it, and there are your instant blessings. God's going to bless you just if you claim it and name it. And that sounds really good until you look at the other side of the coin. And so there is a side of the coin that says God wants you to, to, to be blessed in a prosperous kind of way. But the other side of the coin says something that's almost the exact opposite. And it says this. It teaches us that there's a lot of evil that comes out of our life when we pursue money. First Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10. This is on page 644 in your Bible. 644, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10. We're going to be turning to a lot of places in the Bible. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is, not, uh, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
All right, so Paul is writing to Timothy, just exhorting him on how he, le- how he leads uh, the church there. And he's telling him there's, there's, some, there's some bad stuff that can come from, from money. Now, um, I can remember not too long ago riding in my car. I don't know where I was going, but I heard a, a radio preacher come on. And, I mean, he was just laying it down. And he was espousing that money is evil. And I found myself, like, chastised the man when I'm just on the radio. It's like, come on, guy, read the Bible and preach it right. Because, I mean, does it say that money is evil here? Shake your head left and right. It, it doesn't, okay? And so money is not evil. Uh, Paul's words to Timothy are, for the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Money isn't evil. The love of it is. The longing for money causes us trouble. And so here, here are the two sides of the coin. On the one hand, the Bible says money can be a blessing, but on the other side, it says money can be a curse. And this, this actually leaves us in a quandary as the people of God for, for how, we pursue, how we pursue money. Because there are some of you that are affluent in this room. Probably all of y'all are, are affluent if you live here in this area. Uh, more than that, um, we want to be balanced. We want to be balanced in the perspective of how we understand money, how we treat it, and, um, and, and how we agree with what the Bible says about money. And I would argue with you that there's a balancing point. And the balancing point is simply this. On the one side we have, I mean, how, how, how can I have enough money to meet my needs? And on the other side is, is avoiding trusting in your money to, to save you. And there is a balance to be had between those two. And I think this is what the, the wisdom of Proverbs leads us to. We're going to look at a lot of Proverbs today, especially Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. Proverbs is on, on page 354 in your Bibles. You guys tired of turning on your Bible? we got a few more scripture verses to get through. Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. Um, the, the writer of this proverb is actually praying. He's praying to God and he's asking for a few things. And he says this in verse seven. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be pure and still and profane the name of my God. So the, the, the writer of Proverbs here was saying that, Lord, would you bless me so that I have all that I need to live the life that you've called me to live, but don't give me enough that I forget that my strength actually comes from you, that, that all that I need to sustain me in life ultimately comes from you. Because if I forget that, I'm going to think that all that I have is mine. I'm going to live that way. And it may be a detriment to me instead of being the blessing that you meant it to be. And so what I want to do for you is is take these two ideas of having enough to meet all of my needs and yet avoiding trusting in my money and look at some principles on both sides of this of this two-faced coin. I guess all coins are two-faced, aren't they? Um, what, what principles should we be living by? And so we'll start with this side of, of having enough money. Three principles here. The first is simply this. If you want to have enough money, if you want to have enough, you need to make money. 
All right, and so I, I will allow you to ridicule your pastor and say, like, duh. Like, good grief, Jeff. Give me more than that. All right, bear with me. Um, if you would Google um, who are the, you know, the richest Americans in the world, then Google right now would give you the name um, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, although he's deceased, is, you know, his, his fortune still lives on. And Bill Gates, right? Not get Jobs, yeah, Steve Jobs. I'm sorry. Yeah, y'all, y'all know who it is. All right. All right, so scratch that example. He, Bill Gates is the richest American right now, like $86 billion, and, yeah, living. But I would tell you, he, um, he has to actually had a fortune above that. He keeps giving his money away. But if you would go back into the history of America, the richest American worldwide that's ever been has been uh, Rockefeller, uh, John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller was an oil guy. He co-founded uh, the Standard Oil Company. His fortune grew as kerosene and gas became important to the economy of the world. He was the first person in the world to amass a personal um, fortune over a billion dollars. He died in 1937 having um, a fortune, uh, a net worth estimated at $336 billion, and that's in estimated dollars today. Um, that's not important. What I want you to get at is this idea of, of making money, needing to make money. This is what Rockefeller says about making money. Quote, all I have to do is get up early, stay up late, and strike oil. Now, that doesn't sound revelatory to most of us. Uh, in fact, most of us would say, well, I mean, I'm not a, I don't come from an oil family. I'm not in the right, I don't even live in the right place to, to strike oil. Um, that's not going to be, I'm not going to be able to do that. But there is something that Rockefeller says here that all of us can apply. He says, get up early and stay up late. Okay, and, and you now there's some of you saying, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not an early person. I'm not a late person. Uh, but this is the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs uh, verse 10, verse 4. We're already in Proverbs. Turn to the left from where we were just a second ago. Proverbs 10, verse 4. Most of y'all just cheat and looking on the screen. I know, I can tell. Proverbs 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty. Slack hand, that's lazy. A lazy hand causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Turn to the right, Proverbs 20, verse 13. Proverbs 20, verse 13, that's on page 349. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. Now, what the, the wisdom of Proverbs isn't espousing, although I use the word lazy, that, that lazy, you know, that we can't, like, chill out sometimes. And it's not really calling, calling people lazy. That's, what, that not, that's not what the proverb is saying. He, the verse doesn't mean that everybody that's poor is lazy. But what it does mean is we're, we're responsible for being diligent. That's what these two proverbs are getting at. We have the responsibility to be diligent with the time that God gives us on the earth and to be productive. And uh, what the writer is, is basically telling us here is we have 
diligent. We have to be diligent in being productive. We have to be responsible to manage our careers so that the usable, I mean, the, the good years that we can work hard, that we're actually doing that, that, we're, that we find ourselves, um, that we're able to create blessing and surplus for ourselves because we're working hard. That's what he's espousing here. So perhaps as simple as um, waking up, being productive all day, having a job, doing what that job requires would relieve some of your money tensions. Maybe not, but that's the simplicity of the proverb. Now, some of us find ourselves in money tension because we don't do this. Okay, so this is saying if you aren't being diligent, to, to not be lazy, if you aren't being diligent, very simply, to go and apply for a job and have a job. I know that doesn't apply to many of y'all in here, but maybe, maybe it applies to someone that you know, a relative. It, it's saying that while you have breath in your body, that you should be diligent and responsible, that if you want to have money, you have to use the means to make it. All right. Secondly, that's the first principle. Secondly, you know, there's a lot of people who actually do work hard. They, they labor. They give themselves to waking up early, working hard, um, staying up at night to, to, make in, to make ends meet. But they still don't have enough. They, uh, they're still under financial, great financial pressure. And sometimes it's not an income issue. It's actually an outflow issue. In other words, the second principle is um, they're spending too much money. And so uh, the wisdom is develop and follow a spending plan. Now, when I hear that, uh, like if you're like me, some of you might just groan on the inside because it's the beginning of the year, and you know we always do these introspective things in the beginning of the year, and it's like one of those things. It's it's almost like telling me I got to go on a diet or I got to exercise more. Now, I I don't like the diet. I hate the dieting. I was fasting this week and it killed me. But what this is saying is this is suggesting that you, you need to limit um, what you spend in order to, to have enough money. And I would tell you, and you don't have to be honest with me, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I would tell you 80% of us in this room, if you have financial tension, it's in this area right here, that perhaps you haven't developed and then followed through on a spending plan. And... Um, if, if you don't, I mean, this is the example I would give you. Say, for example, um, right now we were sitting in service, some, somebody's out there in a the parking lot, and they cut the fuel gauge on all of our cars. Think about that, okay? So what, what would you do if you got back to your car and found out that your fuel gauge had been cut? Um, you'd be irate. Some of you would call your insurance and say, hey, my car is vandalized. Um, probably 90% of us would go and get it fixed. Why would we get it fixed? Because we want to make sure that we know how much gas we have in our car. Because no one wants to be driving around in D.C. and not know how much gas you have in your car. I mean, you're, think about it. You're on, the, you're on 495, inner loop, outer loop, and you run out of gas. Wouldn't that just be horrendous? I mean, you've seen that happen before. Nobody wants that hap- happen to you. Um, what I'm suggesting to you is Going through life without developing and following through on a spending plan would be like um, not paying attention to the fuel gauge in your car. 
You never know how much you have. You don't know what's, what's coming in. You don't know what's going out. And therefore, you have no idea of how much you should or should not be spending based upon your unawareness of, of where you are financially. And I would tell you, unfortunately, a lot of us treat our finances like somebody who's driving a car like that without ever looking down to check your, your, fuel, your fuel gauge. You go day to day, um, not paying attention to what you've spent, and in the middle of the month, you go, oops, I don't have any money. And we reach in our back pocket, we break out our credit card, and that's how we live life until the next paycheck. Perhaps that's not this room right here, but some of y'all are living like that. I've lived like that in, in my past, and I try not to live like that in my future. Listen to what Jesus says about that kind of thinking in Luke chapter 14, verse 28. This is on page 568. 568 in the New Testament. I'm not cheating like some of y'all. I'm actually opening my Bible. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on a wrong, wrong chapter. Luke 14. We're going to look at that verse here in a couple seconds. Luke 14, 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who, see it, uh, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, uh, or what king, he goes on, and I'm just going to truncate the, uh, the metaphor he's given uh, right there. Now, I, I have to tell you, contextually, Jesus is not talking about finances here. He's talking about discipleship. But I think the lesson is, is the same. He's talking about counting the cost. He says it doesn't make sense not to count the cost in, in building a building, to make sure I've got enough money for all the supplies to build a building. Otherwise, I, you know, when I get to a point where I have no more money or no supplies, I'll go, oops, I don't have enough. And so he's saying that same thing with finances. It's foolish not to count the costs. It's foolish not to prepare for those costs. And that, and that really is what a spending plan is all about. You estimate ahead of time uh, what it's going to cost you to live based upon your financial needs. Then you look at the income you have available. Then you adjust accordingly. And I would tell you, this, this principle is not just for those who are financially challenged, who have a limited amount of income and should be living life according to that. I would say it's for those who have more than enough, because if you have more than enough money, still paying attention to how much you spend or can spend and then following through with that helps you to do what the next, the third principle is, and that is uh, it, it, it maximizes your ability to invest. So the third principle is this, invest for the future. Proverbs 2120, page 349 in your Bible. I'm going to cheat and look at the board. Proverbs 2120, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So the picture here is, is of a fool that gives no thought to how much he's storing up and just spends all that he has. And the proverb here is saying, wise people don't spend everything they make. A foolish person does. A wise person holds on to some of it. A wise person 
stores it up, but also invests it so that they'll have more in the future. I did some research in one article, nearly said that all Americans have the ability to accumulate wealth if they only make the commitment to do so. Simply by buying a home and keeping that home long enough to build a little bit of equity, or taking advantage of an employer's retirement options and saving monthly, families can build assets of several hundred thousand dollars during their lifetime. Now that sounds simplistic, doesn't it? I mean, it, it does sound simplistic. And I'm not saying that all this is easy because definitely if you have kids and house and stuff to do with your money, your money's all accounted for. But let me give you an example. And here's an example from USAA. It's a simple chart. You're not gonna be able to see it that well. But um, this is an example of dollar cost averaging. Uh, this, is, this is an example of taking a little bit of your money, putting it into some kind of an investment, mutual fund, IRA, that, that kind of thing, and letting your money work for you. Okay? And so if looking on the left side of the screen, um, USAA says if over a 40-year time span, I didn't even put any, no initial investment. Say you started tomorrow. You're going to take $25 or $50. This example is taking $50 a week, amassing $200, putting it in at a meager interest rate of 6%. All right, right now, uh, the median uh, annual percentage interest rate is about 8%. And because the interest rate fluctuates, you can get upwards of 12 some months right now. But 6% is, is, is like uh, very, um, very conservative. So this is saying if I would put $50 a week, $200 a month into some kind of an investment at 6% return over 40 years, I can amass $398,298. If I put in $1,000 and then start investing $50 a week, $200 a month, uh, the, the return goes up to $490,000. I mean, almost a half a million dollars by, by not eating out every every day or or doing a little bit something different on your vacation and i'm i'm no i'm 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 meddling now all right so three principles uh that you can use to ensure that the, the blessing god god gives you i mean you have enough uh to to live on and so ask yourself this i mean where are you where are you with this as we begin this new year, how would you evaluate yourself just in this simple area? I would, let me give you myself, uh, myself an example. When I look at this area, firstly, in terms of uh, my productivity, just doing enough. Uh, I'm a pastor. That's my, that's my full-time job. Many of you don't know this. The first year and a half of the life of our church, um, I was bivocational. I actually... Um, you know, I came to, to D.C. as a church planner. I'm a, I'm a retired Army officer, so I got a pension. That's a blessing from God. But I was living on support, okay, support from those people who uh, looked at our church plan and say, hey, I want to support you. And that was the source of our income. And I, as I'm looking at my bank account, there wasn't enough there. So Jeff had to go out and get a job. And the job that I have, because I have a master's in counseling, I went to Fairfax County Public School, and I worked as a substitute teacher two or three times a week. I could control when I went. I can control when I didn't want to go. And I, I like teaching, and so it was just the right fit for me. So I did that for a year and a half of the life of our church because our church couldn't afford to pay me, uh, me full-time. Actually, the church still doesn't pay me full-time. Just, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes. Um, and so 
as I look at this area of my life, I've done all that I can do uh, time-wise to, uh, to sow into myself to earn income. I'll tell you where I get tripped up. I get tripped up into the second area. You know why? Because I like Starbucks, and I like to eat out at McDonald's, and I like to go out with some of y'all to lunch, invite me to lunch. I'll pay my own bill. I, like to, I just like to go out to lunch. Um, and so I have, you know, I, I'm very good at coming up with plans. I plan for everything, but I don't follow through. So that, that's where I get stuck, okay? And so I know I need to tighten my belt a little bit in this second area so that I'm sticking with my plan and I'm not running out of money before my month my, my month ends as well. You know, in this third area, uh, Larissa and I, I mean, ever since we got married, really, I learned as a, as a young Christian in my, in my teens that I was supposed to, to sow into my life and, and sow into the church. And so, um, really, we've always, um, uh, you know, systematically invested in mutual funds. I'm not a smart guy, and I can't do the day trading and all that stuff. And so I take a little bit of my money, and I put it into a 529 plan for each of my, one of my kids for college. And then we, we've got some, I have a 403B from my old church. I've got some, uh, some IRAs that we put a little bit of money in over time. And it's been neat to see them grow just a little bit, inching up and away. How about you? What would you say about yourself in each one of these areas? That's what I'm asking you to do. Think about that in terms of what you've done. All right, there's another side of the coin. There's another side of the coin. The, the, the first side is having enough. What have you done to make sure that you have enough? God wants you to have enough. He wants you to be blessed. He actually wants you to prosper. But the other side of the coin is God doesn't want you to have so much that you avoid, that you avoid him and instead trust in your money. So then we'll, we'll look at that. And that, that side has two principles. And the first is, is simply this. Showing consumer debt like the plague. Shun consumer debt like the plague. And what I'm saying here is, I mean, this is what I pray for myself. I said, Lord, make me sick. Make me throw up. Make me hate debt, credit card debt, so much that I would abhor it. And I actually do. It doesn't mean that I, it, I actually carry it through and don't never have it. But that's, that's how I want to feel about it. And I want you to feel the same way. I want you to be... Um, so disturbed in yourself from the debt that you take on because God doesn't want you to live like that. Here's how I define consumer debt. It's borrowing today against the prospective earnings of tomorrow to purchase something that doesn't last. Let me say that again. Borrowing today against the prospective earnings of tomorrow to purchase something that does not last. That's really what consumable is. And here's some examples of consumable. Um, vacations. I, our family loves to take vacations. You know, vacation is, you know, I know we like to think of it as a have to, but it's not. It's a want to. Night out on the town. I, I believe in date day and date night. Larissa and I try to do that every week, and I encourage you all to do that. But it's a ha- it's it's a want to, not a have to. Golf clubs, guys. Sometimes even having a new car, is not a have to. There's other ways around taking on more debt to, to, to get some of the things that you think you have to have. Now, consumer debt doesn't refer to borrowing things for, uh, that have potential 
uh, increase in value like a house, a business, sowing into your education. So don't hear me as saying you, you shouldn't amass a little bit of debt for those things because there's a future return on some of those things. But when I think of consumable debt, this is what I'm talking about. Something that you use or you eat or you put on that eventually will wear out. I mean, at, at some point, you won't have use of it anymore because it's going to disappear. Better said, it's a want versus a need. Um, it's something that won't have an effect on you living your life if you don't have it. And I know I might be being a little bit harsh here. Consumer debt is a sign that you believe you have to have something right now that you really can't afford in order to be happy. It says that you don't trust God to provide what you need when you need it. So I'm going to go ahead and run ahead of God and God can just catch up with me. God, bring me my blessings afterward. I'm going to go ahead and buy this now in faith, knowing that you're going to give me the money later on. And so really, I think consumer debt is is a very subtle form of deception that leads to financial bondage. And this is what the wisdom of Proverbs says. Proverbs 22, 7, page 350 in your Bible. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Every time that you take your credit card out and you use money that you aren't going to pay back immediately, I'm not saying don't use your credit card. There can be advantages of using your credit card. Some of you get rewards and all that stuff. But when you choose not to pay it back immediately, what you're doing is you're making yourself a slave to the person, to the business, to the owners that lent you that money. And they can control you in many ways until you pay it off. Um, Newsweek oftentimes publishes things about consumer debt in our nation. Several years ago, they published... uh, they had a whole magazine devoted to the idea of consumer debt. And one article in particular caught my eye, uh, and I saved the article. And it said, the consequences of stepping on the debt, the debt treadmill are sobering. It says, a University of Michigan study found that there were more than, that more than half of lower income families with higher consumer debt and low net worth in 1984 were still broke in 1999, 15 years later. In fact, in that 15-year span, their debt grew from 2,900 to 18,500. 15 years. Look this up yesterday. According to CNN.com, the average household in America in 2012 carries a balance of $15,950 in credit card debt. So where are you with that? Where are you with that? And what do you do if... What do you do if this is your issue? That's, that's really what I want to get at. I like what one financial writer says, and this is going to hurt for some of you. Credit cards don't sneak out at night and go shopping all by themselves. <laughs> so impulse spenders should stop. Say stop. Stop. Say stop. Impulse spenders should stop using them cold turkey. About 10 years ago, Larissa and I had some credit card debt, about $3,000 worth. It just wouldn't go away. We, I mean, and... We've got expensive, Larissa and I, we just, I gotta admit it, we got expensive tastes, and sometimes we don't have enough money for the taste that we have. Uh, and 10 years ago, we found ourselves in a spot where we kept getting to this cycle of, you know, more stuff than money. And, uh, and so we actually didn't cut our credit cards up. We went to Dave Ramsey at our last church, and we just said, all right, just, just stop, stop it. And so we didn't use our credit cards for like a whole year so we can get out of debt. And this is what this, this, is what this writer is saying. Some of you need to cut up your dog on credit cards. Cut them up, hide them. Give them to one of your kids. 
Actually, don't do that. I don't know. Find a mattress, put it, put it inside, go give it to your neighbor, do something with it that, that, that disallows you from using it. She goes on. So impulse shoppers, impulse spenders should stop using their credit cards cold turkey. She says, if you tell me you don't have enough to get through the month paying only cash, then that's the point. You can't afford your current life. Ouch. You can't afford your current life. Those are very good words and very good advice, uh, because when you can't afford your current life, but you go into debt to hang on to it, you've been deceived into trusting money instead of trusting God. And, and so the principle is shun consumer debt like the plague. Here's a second. Give more than you think you can. See, I knew that preacher couldn't stand up and not, and not talk about giving. <laughs> this is not the preacher telling you this. This is the Bible. I'm just I'm just espousing what the Bible already says. This is what I want to encourage you to do. I, I specifically want you to to listen to what the Bible says in regards to um, to having a, a lifestyle of giving more than just giving every once in a while, because we y'all do that. The Bible espouses giving as a lifestyle, purposefully putting giving into your spending plan, organizing your finances so that the money that you give away on a systemic, regular basis is unlike the world gives money. I want you to be countercultural to how the rest of the world thinks about money, because this is the way the rest of the world thinks about giving money. They, they think of it as discretionary funds. Whenever I have the discretionary funds, I'm going to give some money away. Um, that's how the world gives. And so I get a flyer in from a, a nonprofit organization in the mail, or the pastor might stand up and say, there's somebody that with a great need. And so whenever they, the fireman might call me and say they want, they need people to contribute to their, you know, to their retirement fund. And so we feel like, oh, I should give a little bit because the firemen are pretty cool and they've done a lot, a lot since 9-11, you know, those kind of things. Or the pastor might, you know, occasionally, I mean, he, dang, he's, he, gave, he preached a good sermon and he talked about giving at the end of the sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and give. I'm not going to say don't give when, the, when it hits you to give. But what I'm saying is God wants more. He wants you to give because it's right for you to give. And he wants you to give systemically, not because it's not because you're in the mood, not because it's discretionary, because when it's discretionary and you have a little bit left over, you'll never have enough left over to actually give what God wants you to give. All right. So why is this important? Why should we give at all? Uh, well, one answer is God says so. The Bible says the norm for God honoring men and women is to give 10 percent of our earnings to support the work of the church and the advancement of the gospel. I'm not going to go into that because if you've been a part of our um, if you've gone through our membership class, I, I unfold for you a little bit the theology of of giving uh, the 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 premise of uh, the tithe is giving 10 percent of your income and uh, the way that I look at the Bible as it unfolds itself, the tithe, giving away 10%, was instituted before the law was ever given, and so it should never go away. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus says he comes to fulfill the law, uh, not take it away. There are many scriptures in the Bible that espouses this idea of tithing. More than that, say I don't even believe in tithing. The Bible says uh, that the, the New Testament gives us uh, an extreme version of everything that's in the Old Testament. It, it, it just does. Jesus says we're supposed to outdo and do, outdo everything, basically, in the, in the New Testament. 
Giving also honors God. That's the second thing. Giving honors God, and according to the Bible, it makes room for him to get supernaturally involved in our finances. I love this. Proverbs eleven twenty five. Whoever brings blessing will himself be enriched, and one who waters himself will be watered. This is saying there is a return for us when we give. That if I bring a blessing, I'm going to get a blessing back. If I water something, if I pour into something, I'm going to get poured. I mean, that didn't sound too, too good if you're looking at, looking at it literally. But it's saying whatever I give out, I'm going to get it back. This is how Jesus says it in Luke verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 38. This is the verse I was going to, uh, going to earlier. You've heard this before. Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down. Shaken together, running over will be, uh, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. This is an agricultural example, a metaphor given to an agricultural uh, community. And what Jesus was saying is you're going to receive um, full measure of, of what you give out. And so he's taking the example of a harvest, a corn harvest. And he says, this is how you receive full measure. The, the farmer's going to go and cut the corn down. He's going to stack it together. He's going to shake it, okay? And, and so it's going to bind itself together, and, and he's going to add more to it until it's full measure. And this is, he says, this is the return you're going to get when you give. And he's given that in terms of an agricultural example. Those are two examples. I think the most important benefit is not the first two, but, but just this. Giving sacrificially and giving as a habit teaches us that we actually don't need as much as we think we need. And that, that's countercultural because we think we need everything we have and absolutely more. But that's not how God thinks. God says that what you have, actually giving him 10% and, and you keeping nine, 90%, is, is sufficient. It teaches us to trust God and not our money. And for most of us, that really is what it comes down to. Do I really trust God or do I trust my money? And so how are you doing with that? As we kick off this year, and you know, we always, we're introspective as the new year begins, and most of us look at our money and we make plans in regards to what we're going to do with our money. How are you doing in this area of of your finances, balancing it, having enough to live your life. And God wants you to be comfortable. He wants you to be blessed, but also not having so much or trusting in it such that you forget that you're, that God is the source of your sustenance. He's the one supplying you. So let me close with a few reflective questions. The first one is simply this. Is God trying to teach you something through your current financial situation? And I would tell you, Wherever you are on the, the seesaw of that, that two sides of the coin, whether you find yourself with maybe not quite enough or if you got more than you need and it's causing you to trust more in your money and not enough in God, if you're, if you're on the side where you're stressed over your finances, could it be that you just need to be more disciplined about your, about your money? Could it be that God is trying to get you to rely more on his resources than your own? Could it be that God just wants you to pray a little bit more? Pray more, worry less. And if you're, if you're being financially blessed, could it be that God has put you in a position that he wants you to actually 
um, follow through on what, uh, maybe something you promised God. God, if you bless me, I'll be a blessing. Have you done that? Have you actually been a blessing to individuals and organizations and your church that might need, um, might need you to support it? Here's your chance to invest in your own future. If you're being blessed, have you gotten yourself out of debt? This is what I think. I think God is always trying to teach us something through our finances. Um, the Bible says in Luke 16, 10 and 11, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And this says that God, God uses finances to gauge our character. What, I mean, what is... What is God proving about your character based upon you and how you treat your finances? Secondly, do I see God as the owner of myself? As, uh, do I see God as the owner of my money and myself as the manager? I'm not going to spend any time on that because we're going to cover this next week. We're talking about the issue of, of stewardship. I will say this. Most people see their money as just that, their money. But the Bible espouses that God is the source of your money. This is what the Bible lays out. God created everything. He created you. He gave you the ability to create wealth. And so it's all his. And so if God is the owner, that means I'm just the steward. That's the word the Bible uses. I'm the steward. And a steward is a caretaker of all that God has given. And so until this idea sinks into your heart that God owns it, I'm the steward, you really won't be able to implement any of these principles. It's It's impossible. God wants you to to have your money and as you give it, to give it with a cheerful heart. Lastly, could I be content with less than I have today? Could it be possible that I would have less money, less stuff than I have today and be content in my heart? And I I would tell you, think of it like this. Okay, so if something happened to you that forced you to live life a little bit um, at a lower level than you are right now, would that make you happier? Would it just like destroy you? If, if you could just, if you could live with that, then I would tell you, God has given you a contentedness with your money. But I tell you, if, if, if the answer, if your honest answer is, man, it would be hard for me to live at a lesser level than I'm living right now. That means you have a heart issue. You don't have a money issue. You have a heart issue. And that's why we need Jesus. Because God, God sends Jesus to, to give us a new heart. Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. And one of the things of many things that Jesus does for us that comes to us as good news is the Holy Spirit. And Jeremiah said it best. Jesus is the one that God sends to take our, our heart of stone. and He gives us a heart of clay. And so he takes our heart that's, that's solely bent on doing what we want to do. We worship ourselves, We worship our money. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, takes us and inclines us to do what he wants to do. And so, you know, the way that we change about anything in our life, um, it, it starts with repentance. And so wherever you find yourself on the, the seesaw of, of balance, whether you got enough, or whether you, um, you're trying to avoid trusting in your money versus trusting in God, then I would tell you it starts with repentance. Having the right frame of mind in regards to your money starts with repentance. Can we start there?
Don't critique yourself. Don't, 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 you don't need to be condemned or feel guilty. Just repent. Repentance is, is you seeing the right way to go, choosing to believe God in his word, and turning towards him instead of having a hard heart and choosing your own way. And then in faith, that's the other side, repentance. And then faith is, Jesus, I'm going to believe what you say in your word, that as I give sacrificially, as I give habitually, you're going to return it to me. Now, he doesn't always return it monetarily. Sometimes he returns it in uh, relationships in your family, or he returns it in, in just changing your whole attitude about how you feel about God and, and the gospel. But it starts with repentance and faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the new year. We thank you for the introspection that New Year's bring and for the opportunity that we have to begin again. It's almost, it, all, it just comes with a new year that we get to redo some things. We get to rethink some things. And as we begin this new year as individuals and as a church, uh, Lord, we commend ourselves to rethink this idea of money. Lord, we all have our own ideas about money. Many of us in this room think that our money is our money. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd break through. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you show us introspectively where we are on the seesaw? Perhaps we're a person that has enough and we, uh, you know, we're spending our money the way we want to spend it. And you want to challenge us to uh, develop a, a plan. Uh, perhaps you want to challenge us to, to work harder, that we, that we might be able to make more. Some of us, you want a challenge to develop and follow through on a plan so that we don't run out of money before the month goes out. And for some of us, we just need to invest more money to save it for the future. On the other side of that coin, some of us have enough, but we're trusting more in our money than we're trusting in you. And so we don't sow it. We don't give it away. We're not doing anything that the Bible says to do with our money because it's our money. God, would you break into our hearts, make them palatable, and as we repent of those ways that we are doing what we want to do, would you conform us to the image of your son, Jesus? Do that by the Holy Spirit, we pray. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And amen.